Fire King, Episode 6. This sceptered isle. The dream of a Shakespeare festival takes off and gains some great momentum. Well, 1982 to 1984 were seminal as far as getting Shakespeare in my head and in my mind. And at a different level than I had learned it in an English class in college to actually make it breathe on stage. And um, Lee Shallot, who had come over from South Coast Repertory and her partner um, at that time, uh, Christopher Tabori. Um, Tabori hadn't directed anything. And so this was getting his directing wings, so to speak. That was the trade-off that Lee was willing to do. And I was okay with that because I got Lee, um, who had a, a great reputation both in the industry and in Orange County and in LA and with the critics and all of that stuff. And she had a con- she was in charge of the conservatory at SCR, which was dipping into those students as a pipeline. And Christopher had all of these people at his kind of beck and call to help him out. Um, and people like Dakin Matthews, um, who has become a great actor uh, both on the American stage and screen but uh, is, is a brilliant scholar of Shakespeare. Um, and he had been teaching up at the University of California, Northern California, and was coming down occasionally to try to get his feet wet into Hollywood. And so we were able to take advantage of that. And while I wasn't in the cast, so to speak, I was around when, when these people, uh, Dakin Matthews, Ada Brown Mather, Diana Maddox, who uh, was doing dramaturgical work for the Old Globe in San Diego. These were resources that I wouldn't have any connection to. But all of a sudden, I started to learn things from them in the process. This is, was this the Grove Shakespeare Festival? This is this the point? Grove Shakespeare Festival. And it was yeah. named that then, by then? By it 82? was. And, and the amphitheater is now open. And we're in our second, our second season of that. And then also in 82, we start using the gem as part of the Shakespeare Festival and doing like the Rivals and Tartuffe. So you start doing somewhat more of a traditional classical repertory. Exactly. And and so we're working on two stages um, and having- uh, Which is really un- very unusual in Los Angeles. Yeah, to have something like that. Well, and it was it, it was unusual, and I was hoping I was still hoping at that time for a third stage, but that never happened, and it still hasn't happened to this day. But um, those two stages were functioning, and by bringing these people together, and then the infusion of money from this is the four equity contract. Yes, time. Uh, four equity contracts with an equity stage manager. And I also because when say, you went over three contracts with equity, equity required a stage manager contract. So we had we were f- now starting to really function as an equity company, which is again incredibly unusual for Los Angeles, um, which people often say is not a theater town. I think at this time it definitely was yeah. a theater town, I, I, not Los Angeles, but Southern California. Yeah, um, there was very few places for equity stage actors to work, especially in the classics. So. It's quite impressive, I think. And it was a huge leap. Yeah. So 1982 is a huge leap. Yeah. We're doing Twelfth Night and uh, Romeo and Juliet. And we would go up in the auditioning process in the first year. 
we went to ACT in San Francisco and started auditioning actors like um, Annette Benning. Annette Benning. And uh, in 1982, so we're auditioning for for a Juliet, and I see Annette Benning in the audition room, and I go, "Wow!" I mean, she blew me away. And uh, and the director Christopher um, didn't like her, and I didn't, I couldn't figure out why. And uh, a couple of years ago, when she, uh, she was in person on campus, I immediately remembered why, because she's about five nine or five ten, and. Wayne Alexander, who was a well-known actor at the time, who was playing Romeo, uh, what was five ten? So, in other words, he mm-hmm. felt that she was too tall for him to play against his Juliet, which I thought was nonsense. Uh, I still think it's nonsense, but that's why we didn't cast her. And and the one that you know, the one that got away, because mm-hmm. I I thought she was spectacular. But we started we really started getting another level of performer on stage, um, not just the equity, but we were going after MFAs, mm-hmm. uh, both at ACT, UC Irvine, um, USC, you know. Did you have a management staff that was working with, because I know that at one point in the very early eighties, you struck out, struck out kind of on, on your own. Um, and you had to restructure your support group. Did you have a, a group of management people working with you? No, I had to a, help. I had at this point, I had a bunch of, I had a group of people who were working basically for minimum wage. Some of them forty hours a week, some of them twenty hours a week, who were doing marketing and things like that, uh, and also the management side of things as much as possible. I didn't have a managing director at the time. I was that, mm-hmm. which was one of the reasons why I, I, I wasn't more artistically involved initially. Mm-hmm. But I was learning a great deal. I was learning, you know, what are they looking for in these auditions when people are, are auditioning? And we were up in LA uh, at, uh, and we were at the Center Theater Group auditioning people and sitting in those auditions for eight hours a day and watching some, I mean, the a panoply of actors coming from people who are just getting into the business to people who had a great deal of experience and finding out who was working and what they were looking for and how they were handling the language. Mm -hmm. And so I learned by sitting in on those auditions, um, what we were looking for as far as a company of actors would go to play Shakespeare. Now, this is not anything I learned in school, right? This is something I learned on the job. I learned uh, in those, uh, specifically in those three years, how, how to create a company who could do Shakespeare's language. And, and that was critical. And almost at, at not the production level that we were working with in Summerstock, but to do it quickly too, to, to, well, the what, three week what, rehears- was a three week equity rehearsals. Yeah, it was three week equity rehearsals with with then a tech week. Mm -hmm. Um, There were still 10 out of 12s at that time, and uh, we were allowed one 10 out of 12 under the agreement uh, with equity. Um, And we were on on, because we were outside, it was a very bizarre kind of tech because it was daylight until 8 30. So the lights didn't really kick in till late at night. So we had to, it was a whole technical rehearsal process was 
kind of inverted and and had had to be created on the spot. But one of the things that I learned, you know, jumping back to the summer stock thing, is we were putting up full musicals basically every two weeks. Yeah. But when you take the off days and the 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 fact that you've only got rehearsals in the afternoon and stuff, you're you're basically putting up a full like fiddler on the roof with 40 hours of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. To to be clear for people who've never done it, um, as an actor, we would get up in the morning, rehearse in the morning, have lunch, rehearse in the afternoon, have dinner. During lunch and dinner, usually we would find some time with the musical director because we were doing a bar show as well and singing songs after. So then we'd, we would do the production in the evening. Then we would do the bar show. Then we would <laughs> go to sleep. Um, or not, and then we would start it all over again. And what, usually six days a week of that. Yeah, um, it's it, it's a young person's game. Yep. Um, as I look back on it, but it's in the trenches training. It really is. It teaches you to make quick decisions and to operate quickly, and it really teaches you to depend on each other and trust your gut. Yeah, and trust your your company. Yeah. Um, you you had to go with many times the first the first take and. Sometimes it was brilliant and sometimes not yeah. so. But the learning of that kind of process of working that quickly was tremendous. And, you know, I used to ask some of my students who had done the summer, I say, what's the difference from your perspective of doing a summer show with professionals? And it was the speed yeah. at which you were working because I, time is money. I remember when we did Sweet Charity and Melinda was choreographing The Rich Man's Frug, which is a very famous dance from that show, very Fosse style. And I think we had one rehearsal. Um, and then we would go work it together, but literally one rehearsal for the entire number because we were doing whole musicals every two weeks. It, yeah, it was a, a baptism of fire in some ways, but it tested your mettle and it, and it taught us. Can I, there's three... Yesterday, I started noticing that there's themes coming through this that really do last your whole career. The one is you're working ensemble. You like to work with an ensemble. But there's two others that are coming up today. And one is this idea that you brought up with Chris Bori, where you give people a chance to learn on the job. Um, you did that with me with Shakespeare. You you take risks with people, and you invest in people, and trusting that they're going to grow into the experience which also means that you leave a little bit of room for them not to be particularly adept at the beginning of that experience, which I think is very generous, maybe dangerous from a business perspective. And the other thing, of course, that comes from that is that you believe, you seem to believe, and it's something you told me when I first said, but it, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I've done one Shakespeare show, and you said you'll learn on the job. That idea of learning on the job um, seems to be a thread that, that does go through your career as I, as I look at it. Um, it's very generous. And I've said this about you publicly before, that I, I find you to be very generous with giving people an opportunity to step into their professionalism. And you, lots and lots and lots of people throughout the years benefited from that. And it's interesting for me to hear that it's happening at this period where the Shakespeare stuff is muscling up and really rising up. Because I remember coming to those shows and it looked to me, and you looked to me, like a full-blown professional theater company working at a top-tier level. It, it, the production values were very high. The acting was terrific. You know, um, It looked like almost a professional theater born out of whole cloth. It, you know, it, it was there. Um, and that's what it looked like from the outside. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the building of it. And 
Well, it was those three years were really foundational for what was to follow and for that professionalism to continue. How many years did it did that iteration of the company was that nine years? Well, it it was 12 and a half. um, For the Grove Shakespeare. For the Grove Shakespeare Festival that I was involved in it. It lasted another 18 months after I left it, which we'll get to Mm -hmm. in a minute. But um, it's a long time. Yeah. And and again, I, I think I alluded earlier to this idea of an inverted. Here we had these theaters that usually are created from a group of, you know, if you look at some of the great regional theaters, they're coming from a group of people mm-hmm. who have formed an artistic identity, who've gathered an audience, who've gathered supporters, and then they end up finding their their physical plant, you know, like South Coast Repertory or Berkeley Rep or- Noise Within currently. Is, noise is Within, cool. you know, th- those kinds of things where they're they're coming from years of creating a foundation. That's, that isn't going to dissipate. Although we're in very difficult times after the pandemic and things like that, where everybody's been affected uh, in different ways. But um, I mean, this is again at the end of the 20th century um, where newspapers make, newspaper coverage makes huge difference. In the 80s. Uh, in the 80s yeah. and into the 90s. 90s, yeah. Uh, well, of, there was coverage. Yeah. And a lot of it. And the people who are going to the theater are reading it. They're reading, they're reading, they're people who take newspapers, daily yeah. newspapers. You don't see that anymore, but that was the case. I mean, you know, uh, I can remember when that paper would hit on the Monday following the opening, hit the pavement of my, of my uh, driveway at three or four o'clock in the morning and my heart beating and going out to see what the review was. And if it was good, it was joyous. And if it was bad, it was devastating yeah. because the box office would react to it. So there was a lot of power. Uh, and and even though we had built a good subscriber base, not terrific, but a solid subscriber base and a good single ticket base, and we were starting, we were just starting to get donations and things like that in. We were basically funded by the city of Garden Grove and by Santa Ana College, which I, you know, which becomes part of the house of cards of when those, when that funding is pulled away, Mm. how do you survive? You know, especially when that's what you've been relying on. It's good to remind people that this was before the internet. This is before cell phones. This is nothing. Literally the newspaper was it. Yeah. And word of mouth. Um, magazines you know i mean it's during this time where all of a sudden we're getting the san francisco paper down mm-hmm. we're getting the san diego paper up we're getting uh we're getting coverage in Westways uh, on triple a to be there's, taken very seriously right and there's a there's a feature article this happens a little bit later but there's a feature article in a german glossy that was equivalent to life magazine mm-hmm. you know in europe so all of a sudden, you know, it, the word is getting out mm-hmm. and, and we're being taken seriously. And we get our first California state arts grants, um, which was important because that meant that you were being taken seriously and you were ranked and you were, you were evaluated by uh, people who were in your, uh, you know, we, I remember when we got three pl- 
three three and a half stars out of four on the California State thing, and and uh, that was a big deal, you know, because they only funded it, I think, at three. Um, they funded the threes and the fours in those days. Uh, Did that kind of credibility affect your relationship with the Garden Grove board? And well, the the local politics was a whole different ball of wax because it those things the arts didn't mean anything to them from that perspective mm-hmm. i mean it was always good when you would hear something about that but you know they we, didn't recognize had, what it meant right they they you know at one city council meeting one one of the city councilmen uh i think his name was milt krieger had been at some kind of conference in canada and and, it, and i think it was in toronto and uh, when he told somebody he was from Garden Grove and the guy said, oh, I hear they've got a Shakespeare festival there. Mm. And they heard, you know, that's, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. 3,000 miles away. And, and he brought that up at a city council meeting. And that, that was, that kind of stuff went a long way. So there, those who were supporting you on the city council and had wanted to turn that garbage grove idea around uh, must have been thrilled for that because it was turning it around right it was becoming a place that was associated with certainly on a much culture. larger you know regional national level that was yeah. starting to happen uh, you know it's there's a hierarchy in in uh, orange county uh, those people who have been there know that south of the 405 you're <laughs> your upper crust and mm-hmm. north of the 405 you're not mm-hmm. you know and so we were north of the 405 so it, it was it's always going to be a fight but it it ultimately i think what i had set out to do which was to do what i had been charged which was improve the image of the community and uh it seemed to work from my point of view very well with the uh idea of doing a shakespeare festival which was not being done anywhere within a 30, 40 mile radius. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was a good thing. I do want to jump back just a little bit into, uh, you know, seeing the company develop mm-hmm. people like Annette Benning, Greg, Gregory Itzen, who ended up on Broadway and in, in a major hit and who was on uh, a recurring character for years on 24 with, yeah, major film television actor and, yeah yeah uh and those uh french stewart mm-hmm. basically started out you know working on both stages at our theater that while they weren't known commodities at that time that talent level was there and and really starting to expand and so i'm learning all of these things I'm chomping at the bit now to direct Shakespeare. Now I've been directing in the gem theater in what I called the off season, which was the fall winter season. So this company is going year long. Yeah, we're going, we're going pretty much year long. Although because we needed downtime for repair and things like that, we, we started cutting it off on the smaller theater in April. So we'd have time to get ready to go in. But for, for, Several years there, we were going 12 months, 11 months out of the year. And did you have a troop of actors who were pretty consistent through those 12 months or did they come and go? We were starting to get that. We were starting to get that in the gem theater. We're starting to get a a, a cadre of non, of very talented non-equity actors um, who at some point, many of them transitioned then into, into equity, into the union. 
but uh, they, I tried to form a, a nucleus of those people. And why? Well, again, I, I still believe in the concept of ensemble of having a company of people of trying as much as I could to pay them something, even if I couldn't pay everybody union wages at the point, everybody got something. That was my, that was one of the reasons I started this whole thing of producing is I wanted one to make money. I wanted to make my living at it. And two, I wanted to be able to pay artists and actors, uh, and craftspeople, uh, something it, it, because we had, you know, you start off, you're doing it for free for so long that at some point you need to get some kind of remuneration, even if it's just gas money, so that you're not having to pay to do the work. That was my, that was my hope. And I was drawing a lot of, I was drawing, all of the actors were coming from LA and driving 35, 40 miles down the freeway to come do this. So I felt obligated to try to give them something in return for that. I can say this, it might've been your hope, but it was also your standard for your entire career, because you you did that your entire career. You paid, as I said at your recent celebration for your retirement as a college professor, it, it, Tom Braddock always paid actors, you know, always believed that actors are workers and deserve to be paid. It, I think it's quite admirable. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you one story that pops up later on that I was accused of. Uh, when we were became this nonprofit organization and the city gave us this $128,000, uh, which was then transferred into a bank account that was set up for the non by the nonprofit corporation. I looked over the budget and there were two items that were on there. One, we had a, a, a part-time custodian and we also had in the gem theater indoor plant service where they would come in hmm. You know, and that was that was at that time that was about a hundred, hundred and twenty bucks a month to to do all of that. Now it looked great, but what I did was is I those were some of the items that I cut out of the budget so I could pay actors, and I was accused later on of 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 this being um, one of my failings that I had, you know, surreptitiously cut this out of the budget and therefore I was, I was, um, mishandling funds. And I basically said, I, I look at it as a point of pride and I would do it again at the drop of a hat I, I have because to. the staff, the people who were getting, even my part-timers could go in and clean the toilets. And, and I, you know, I was vacuuming the carpets. Yeah. I was the art quote unquote artistic director and I'm vacuuming the carpets. I had one guy come in bringing his family around to show them the theater. He said, and he's shocked. And he looked at me and he said, well, this is the artistic director. And he said, why are you doing the carpets? I said, somebody has to do them. It has to be done. And, um, I'm getting a salary and I'm the one that's available at this time to do it. This is why I want to shine a light, a light on this aspect of your relationship to actors. I mean, it's July of 2023, and we're in the middle of a gigantic actor's strike right now and a writer's strike uh, over these very issues, you know? And you, you, you tackled them and you battled them your whole career. And I was there for a lot of that. I saw you doing it, and and... I, I saw you <laughs> vacuuming, you know, it, it, 
Again, I think it's a, it's a very consistent theme that runs through your career, that idea of wanting to, not just professionalism, but also to treat people like professionals and like people who are trained to do something. Um, can we talk about, because again, from my perspective, I came to your theater and it looked like a full-fledged major theater, which it was. Same thing with Shakespeare. Um, it seemed like you'd been doing Shakespeare for years and years and years, when in fact, it, this sounds like this is the time where you were building your relationship with Shakespeare. Can you talk about both, like I'm thinking Child's Christmas and Wales, the kind of of production quality um, that became sort of a standard for this theater through the 80s. Um, and it also became a place like Child's Christmas and Wales where people would go back for kind of, you know, get their annual holiday hit and things like that. They were going to a theater company for that. But also that rise of Shakespeare, because isn't it, by the time the 90s come, you're really deeply in Shakespeare. And can you talk about that? Yeah, I, well, I, I direct my first, my, I direct my first Shakespeare in 1984 in the Gem Theater. Which is what? With Comedy of Errors. And, um, I'll remember uh, Cliff Faulkner did the set and Shigeru Yaji designed the costumes. Um, and I had a solid core company. It was, it was in the second, it was on the second stage. It was my first Shakespeare. It was in rhymed couplets and it was a hit and it was a success. And it was kind of my graduation into, okay, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had acted in some Shakespeare, I had studied some Shakespeare. The King Lear was very important for me to really understand what Shakespeare meant, that it existed in such a depth of language that it was so connected to the human condition that it gets back to that, the time when I'm doing experimental, socially conscious theater where I wanted to find that again. And that's where Shakespeare comes in. It, it, that's it. Not only was it, it's socially conscious, it was economically viable because there's an audience out there for it. People want to see it. Mm -hmm. And it and the difficulty is of course, finding them. That's, that's finding that audience who want to come see it. I, I often said this, that I was not trying to proselytize Shakespeare. I was not trying to convert you into being a Shakespeare lover. What I was trying to do was to find the people who wanted to hear it and make it as clear as possible and, and, and not junk it up with a lot of conceptualization and, and, you know, like Lear, uh, uh, on the moon in a 54 Buick. I mean, it, things that are non sequiturs that don't mean anything. And so it, it became really important at that time period. And, uh, and I did my first show, and then, and that was in the gym. That was in the gym, and I w- and I was very proud of it. And then, as things happen in kind of three year cycles, Tabori and and Shallot went away. They had done their three seasons. They had helped me in in numer- numerous ways, and they had set up a level of professionalism and expectation both on the side of the audience and on the side of the uh um 
of the company that we were doing professional work. And so some of the acting companies stayed on after they left. And uh, Benjamin Stewart, uh, uh, Greg Itson, um, uh, Wayne Alexander, for example, uh, and, and did several shows after uh, that initial formation, that foundation was established, that professional foundation was established. And then we were working both, both stages. Um, so the gem was the indoor theater? Yes. And 172 seats. What's the name of the amphitheater? It was the Festival Amphitheater at the time. It's called the Garden Amp now, and it, it does small concerts. About 500 seats? 550 seats, yeah. yeah. Outdoors. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was involved in the design process of that and, you know, felt it was a, it was kind of a Romanesque, you know, amphitheater, but I love doing Shakespeare out there. Huge, huge, wide stage. Very, very big stage. Um, 102 feet wide on the, on the stage. Yeah. yeah. And so when you were doing your seasons, you were doing them in both theaters. I was mostly, uh, we would continue during the winter and the fall in the gym. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring, then we would take a break. Uh, so in 1985, uh, we'd been a critical success. We were, we were increasing the board members. I was getting the city council to put more people on. I was able to find some people, uh, who would be of help to me who had been on the different, uh, volunteer boards and things like that. And so I staged my first Shakespeare the next year, 1985, outdoors. Lauren Mitchell comes from New York. Shrew. Taming who, of the Shrew. In Taming of the Shrew. Uh, who's Lauren, been on- who you'd done summer stock with for two years and gone on to become a professional actor in New York. Right. With some very, very strong success with Sondheim. And, and at, was at the Neighborhood Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And she played Kate. Um, and my concept, my and Carl Ruggiero and Carl Ruggiero came back to play Petruchio. And when you know Lauren was about five eleven, Carl was six two. So when she was in short heels, they were looking each other right in the eye, and that was by design. I wanted the two of them to kind of stand out on stage, and uh, and that became a huge success. Uh, and then Gregory Itzen played Grumio in that. Uh, and it was a great deal of fun. Um, and that launched me into a very creative period of the next three years, 85, 86, and 87, of, for me, creatively, was some of the strongest work I've ever done. Um, I, I did, in 86, I did a production of uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor that Dan Sullivan came in and gave a huge review on Critic for LA Times. For the Los Angeles Times with a, a front page on the calendar. And, and you know, we scored all kinds of new audience members from it because it, it, it opened up uh, the door for us. And, and, uh, uh, and those three years were the happiest years for me personally, um, able to get uh, that theater really humming and to walk down the street and see both theaters full of audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was it. That was living the dream. Uh, and and both both theaters with hits. You know, it was fa phenomenal. Yeah, how exciting. Yeah. A Player King is produced by Roland Bayh. 
Sound design, editing, and engineering by William Georges. Directed, curated, and narrated by Elisa Braddock. The music was originally created for productions at Shakespeare Orange County. Thanks from Tom during the Gem and Grove years. City of Garden Grove, Sandra Evans, Gwen Weisner, Cal Reitzel, Stephen Warner, Jeffrey Kopp, Lee Shallot Schemmel, Krista Bory, Anne Barillet, Carl Rigardo, Dan Cartmel, Sherry Brown, Bill Myers, David Palmer, John Fisher, Chuck Estes, Benjamin Stewart, Shigeru Yaji, Cliff Faulkner, Gil Morales, Rancho Santiago College, Roy Conboy, Bert Peachy, and Karen Weller. Mm-hmm.